You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, second petition. It asks us, what do we pray for in the second petition? And the answer given is in the second petition, which is, you'll remember, thy kingdom come. We pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed. Of course, as we pray this, these are all the implications. And that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it, and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. So one of the assumptions behind this particular petition is that God is a great and glorious king. He has a kingdom. And of course, when there's a kingdom, the implication is that there is a king. He is the creator of all things, as Revelation 4, the whole chapter points out. He's worthy of praise. And as such, he has universal propriety. That means ownership in everything that's created. Visible, invisible, heaven and earth, the sea, all that is in them. He has universal propriety. It belongs to him. Every beast of the forest is mine, he says. The cattle on a thousand hills. Now, there are probably more than a thousand hills on earth, but that is an idiom expressing his complete ownership. He owns you and he owns me. As the divine proprietor of the universe, God has the right to dispose of his creatures as he sees fit. And of course, the psalmist says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and the seas and all deeps, and he has the right to do so. Um, That one text in one of the Gospels, you remember when Jesus was casting out the demons and they asked to go into the herd of pigs. I think there was a thousand pigs or something. That used to really trouble me. Well, the pigs didn't do anything. And those shepherds didn't do anything. And he destroyed the whole flock, the whole herd. But then I came to realize how many lambs were slaughtered over the centuries. You know, and God can do what he wants. They're his. So I just submit, okay, Lord, you want to get rid of pigs? Get rid of pigs. Another assumption behind this petition is that there are evil forces who stand in opposition to God. Of course, we're praying for the kingdom to come, but until it does so, there is something in its place, and it is the usurper, Satan himself. Man is the, the sinner is a slave to sin. We're born that way. He is a vassal of Satan, who is a liar, murderer, and usurper. So we're assuming here, as we offer this petition, that there are these evil forces standing in opposition to the great and glorious king. There's a war going on, a great cosmic battle. We're part of it. Wherever the gospel is not preached... The devil reigns unchallenged, at least humanly speaking, in this world, and rules even in some churches, so-called. You remember in Revelation, I know your tribulation, says Jesus, and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And of course, there are synagogues of Satan throughout the world, even today, churches that claim to be churches. And they're not. They have let go of orthodoxy. There is no gospel. There is no saving 
preaching from their pulpit, and they are synagogues of Satan. So these two great assumptions stand behind or underneath this second petition. Any questions on this before we move on? Okay. I mean, they're pretty obvious, but I think it's important to point these things out before we go on to the petition itself. Okay? In this petition, now we have to realize we're not praying that God govern the world. Why? Why would I say that? Seems kind of anti-biblical. Only because he already governs the world. He preserves and governs all creatures and orders all of their actions. He does that. He is the everlasting and the living and true God. His power is already exercised over the entire expanse of the universe. So why would we pray for something that already exists? We do thank him for this. We acknowledge his sovereignty. I bless the Most High, said King Nebuchadnezzar, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. No beginning, no end. It exists. He has dominion without exception. So the kingdom of God, we have to understand, may be considered in two different ways, or we might say from two different vantage points. His providential kingdom refers to this, what we just talked about, his absolute sovereignty over all things in the entire creation. He is sovereign. He sits upon the throne. He established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. (laughs) Why would we pray for that which already exists? That's not what we're talking about. God's redemptive kingdom refers to his church as a society distinct from the rest of the world. There is a people called out. That's what church means, this called out people from the unbelieving world. And it's a visible expression of his kingdom. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven or shall have been bound in heaven and so forth. So he is equating there the visible church as the visible expression of his kingdom, his redemptive kingdom on earth. That's what we're praying for. The government of God's redemptive kingdom has been placed into the able hands of Jesus Christ. He is the king and head of the church. And he has promised that those gates of hell, as intimidating, uh, as daunting as they may be, will not prevail against his church. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And of course, as you know, in the Old Testament, and particularly in the Psalms, when it refers to Zion, it is referring to God's church. The Old Testament church, the New Testament church, they're one and the same. Different administrations, but the same church. I assign to you, says Jesus, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. So there was a point in time. Now, in eternity, God has assigned to the mediator the kingdom. From all eternity, he decreed this to be so. But God has assigned to us through Jesus Christ the kingdom, just as he assigned to Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and men. So there's a kingdom given to Jesus as distinct from his providential kingdom. For this reason, this particular kingdom for which we pray has been described as Christ's messianic 
or mediatorial kingdom. And you can see why. He is the Messiah. He is the mediator. So he is the administrator, the sovereign in this kingdom. Okay, does that all make sense? Anybody have any questions on this part? When we're praying, we have to understand that we're asking for his mediatorial kingdom to come in its fullness. And apparently it's not here in its fullness yet, which is why we pray. So this kingdom was given to Christ as a reward for his meritorious obedience. You remember that passage in um, Philippians 2, I think it is. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, and that therefore is vitally important. It shows that as a consequence, as a reward for his obedience and death, he's given the kingdom. He's exalted above the heavens. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Well, when has it been given to you, Lord? I thought you had all authority as the eternal Son of God. Well, today I have begotten thee. On your resurrection, as you're exalted, you've been given all of this authority as the mediator. Not as God, as the mediator, the God-man, the representative of the church. All authority. And he reigns supreme over this kingdom. He had authority as God, but now he's granted authority as the mediator, as the Messiah, the Christ. And it is of this mediatorial kingdom that's in view in this second petition. That's what we're talking about. We pray for the coming of this mediatorial kingdom in the state both of grace and of glory. You saw that in the answer of the second petition. Of grace, of course, in this life, on this earth, in this period, prior to his second coming, and then in glory at the consummation when Jesus returns. And then as the saying goes, grace is God's glory begun, and glory is God's grace consummated. You've probably heard that before. Grace is God's glory begun. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, right? It's going to be completed. If you've been born again, there is no question. Your place in heaven is reserved, and he continues to make you blameless before his presence. But it's God's glory begun, and glory, then, is God's grace consummated or perfected. That's what we long for. And the kingdom of grace can be viewed either as an outward administration or an inward operation. Both. Outward administration, things we can see, or inward operations, things we can't see. The outward administration is the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. That's how we discern a true church. If you want to know if a church is true, orthodox, faithful, then you have to discern whether it preaches the whole counsel of God and administers the sacraments rightly. That's the nub. I'm always a little bit discouraged when somebody tells me the reason for them looking for a particular church, and it's all kinds of things other than the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. Now, if you have three churches and all three of them are preaching the word and ministering the sacraments, okay. There are other things that are important, right? But that's your first thing to look for, the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel that should be believed. 
That's the outward administration, but there's also, it can be referred to as the inward operation, which is the work of God's Spirit who enlightens the mind and renews the will, something going on internally. The true church of Christ is born again. He exercises his gracious power, which is sovereign, in bringing people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's an incredible thing. It's a miracle of grace. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom, it is the kingdom of grace. It's called the kingdom of grace because gathering sinners into it is of grace. It's gracious. It's gracious because of the means that he uses. Very simple things. Things that we can see and do and participate in. He didn't have to do it this way. But he did so that even a child can enter in. It's gracious because of the means. And it's gracious because of the end. It's salvation, which we don't deserve. But which he's pleased to give. It's a gracious thing. So it is the kingdom of grace. You and I... If we had what we deserve, we wouldn't be here this morning. We are kept in this kingdom by feeding upon Christ, by receiving of his fullness, by trusting in his merits. Jim? What is the relationship between this mediatorial kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth? It is the mediatorial kingdom consummated. That is the fruition of the promise. So you see Genesis 3.15, the original promise published... And all through history, that promise is simply expanded, unfolded, and made more clear until finally, the fullness of time, Jesus comes, we understand now, and we look forward to this glorious consummation. When we rejoice with Christ in the wedding banquet, and we join with him in the new heavens and the new earth. So in this same way, Christ, where Adam failed to before this, in the original request by God to be obedient, Christ So if I understand the question, um, Christ accomplished what Adam failed to accomplish, and so what part do we have to play, right? Well, we're disciples of Christ, and he has made us a kingdom and priests for his God, and therefore we are used by the Lord to advance his kingdom on earth. Yeah, I don't know if that's where you're... Yeah, okay. And we're going to get to that in terms of uh, what goes on and how this kingdom is advanced, but that is how it's done. Now, again, this is a gracious thing because God could have done it in an instant, but he wants to include us in the great drama. Isn't that incredible? We get to share in the victory. And at that wedding feast, I can't imagine us rehearsing all the ways in which each one of us participated in the advance of his kingdom, even giving a cup of cold water to a believer. It's an amazing thing. So Satan has set up his rival kingdom in opposition to Christ's kingdom. We do assume that. Jesus said, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? He has a kingdom. There is a hierarchy. It is an evil kingdom. It is a kingdom of darkness, wickedness, and enmity toward God. <clears throat> there isn't a spark of love or goodness in it. 
It is the dark kingdom into which every sinner by nature is a subject. We were all parts of this kingdom at one point or another. Some in the church maybe still are. As we've said so often, there is no perfect church. There is no church on earth that is perfectly pure. It's not our job to look into the heart and to discern whether or not you are part of it. It's my job to figure out if I am, right, and to make sure that I'm right with the Lord. Now, officers have a different function. They are to judge the profession, not the heart, the profession of faith. Um, If Tim has a credible profession of faith, we render a judgment. Yes, he has a credible profession of faith. He professes Christ. He understands the gospel. His life measures up to it. You're welcome in. If his life begins to show the contrary, we put him out. That's different. That's not judgmentalism. That is what Christ calls his officers to do. But every other Christian, all of us, personally have to discern whether or not we are sincere in our faith. So we pray that the kingdom of Satan may be destroyed and the kingdom of Christ may be advanced. Both of those going on at the same time. There is this inverse relationship. If the kingdom of Christ is waning, the kingdom of Satan is waxing. I think I got those right. I always get the wax and wane wrong. If the kingdom of Christ is waxing, then the kingdom of Satan is waning, right? Waning is going down. Waxing is going up. Okay. The reason the Son of God appeared, the whole purpose was to destroy the works of the devil. And the implication of that, the inverse of that is true, to set up the mediatorial kingdom. As a prophet, he destroys and removes the darkness and deceit by which sinners are possessed. Ignorance. The world lies in ignorance. The biblical illiteracy of our country is staggering. There was a time in which McGuffey's readers informed all of the citizens of this country of the Bible. They didn't believe it, but at least they knew about it. Today, you can walk the streets and ask them something about the Bible. They don't have a clue. They don't know the stories. They don't know the texts. They don't know the doctrines. They're in darkness. He has revealed in the divinely inspired word all things necessary for our edification and salvation. By the way, the church is culpable in this because the church has failed miserably in revealing all things and preaching the whole counsel of God. So this gets back to Jim's question. As a prophet, Christ works through his church prophetically. As a priest, he destroys the guilt and corruption of sin by which the devil holds sinners captive. That's his priestly work. He fulfilled all righteousness in his life. Every single law he fulfilled perfectly, and he satisfied justice by his vicarious death, and therefore he destroys the guilt of sin. What a wonderful thing. And God uses the church to proclaim this news. It's not good views. Many churches proclaim good views, their views. It's good news. It's the news of Christ. By obtaining the promised spirit whom he poured out upon the church, he destroys the power of sin. He gives us that wonderful, infused grace that the Spirit provides. And then as a king, he destroys the power of Satan who fights to keep his goods for himself. You remember that story Jesus told? No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. He is a strong man. 
then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus came and bound the strong man as a great king, and he plunders his house. So as a prophet, priest, and king, he destroys the kingdom of Satan, and he advances his own kingdom. Questions on this particular slide? When we say this petition, as we rehearse it every first Sunday of the month, this is what we're saying. And I hope we say it with intelligence and not just with rote, uh, with rote understanding. I have to guard against that because that's so easy for me just to kind of rattle it off and not think about it, you know. Satan's kingdom is destroyed by the advance of Christ's kingdom. It advances when sinners are brought into it and kept in it. That's the visible kingdom of Christ on earth, the visible expression. We're brought in by God's spirit and his word. It's an amazing thing. As the psalmist David said, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. There is power that the spirit uses this word in a miraculous, miraculous in the sense of grace way. And the new birth is something that cannot be explained fully, but it's something that can be experienced only by the individual convert. Even the, even the teacher of Israel didn't fully understand it, Nicodemus. You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things. And thankfully, the Lord taught him. In this petition, then, we pray positively that the gospel of Jesus Christ be propagated throughout the world. That's an old-fashioned, expensive word. It's a good word. It be propagated, preached, taught, shared, read, embraced. Finally, brothers, says Paul, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. So he's asking for prayer. The apostle is asking for prayer. That this, he understood it didn't matter to him if he was an apostle or not. I mean, it had to have the Spirit's influence for this word to have its effect. How is the word made effectual to the elect? The Spirit makes the word an effectual means of saving the elect. Only the Holy Spirit. And therefore we pray for this word, that the Jews may be called and the fullness of the Gentiles brought into the church. And there what he's doing or what they're doing is playing on the two texts or various texts which talk about the conversion of both Jew and Gentile. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them, the Jews, that they may be saved. He's praying for his brethren according to the flesh. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, I know that text has all kinds of interpretations. There's been a debate throughout the centuries. Whatever it means, we're praying for Gentiles to come in, Jews and Gentiles. We want the whole of God's people to come in. And insofar as that happens, the strong man binds the strong man, the stronger man binds the strong man, and he plunders his goods. And therefore, to this end, the calling of the Jews, the fullness of the Gentiles, we pray that our king would furnish his church with gospel officers and ordinances. Word, sacraments, prayer. Lord, please give your church officers that are faithful, ordinances that you can use to convince and convert sinners and to comfort and build up believers. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. <clears throat> we also are to be lights in the world. It's a dark world. 
So we ask him to purge the church from corruption. How important is this? You see the modern church, particularly the American church, um, plagued with corruption. It's sad. It's tragic. It's a terrible witness. It's not light. It's barely a flicker. And so we're asking the church to purge the church. And of course, that might mean some difficult times. Purging doesn't happen in prosperity, right? For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. He desires a pure offering. When you see that word incense there, I think he's talking about the church's prayers. That these would be sincere and according to his word and offered with gratitude and confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Any questions on, on anything there? Rob? Yeah, the question is, uh, some family members claim they're being <clears throat> assaulted by the enemy, his kingdom forces. How would we encourage them in God's sovereignty? This is one of those things where in Scripture it's very comfortable affirming both. You know, Paul in Ephesians 6 is not shy in telling us, hey, you're in a battle, and you need to take up the whole armor of God. And if you don't, you're going to pay a heavy price. At the same time, he's telling us that God controls all things. The outcome is certain, and if he's begun a good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It may not be an easy road, but he's going to complete it. So I'd encourage them in those texts to affirm God's sovereignty, but exhort them with the texts that tell us to take up the mantle and fight. This is a fight, and this is one of the reasons why prosperity is so dangerous. Um, Ward had a great question that he asked me the other day, and it's this idea that, you know, why am I not persecuted? Am I an illegitimate child? Well, that's a good question. And of course, Jesus or the New Testament authors never tell us how often, how severe, or when that persecution will happen, right? It could happen in a variety of ways. You're not just going to be the knife to your throat. I mean, it can be all kinds of things, slander, ignoring you for a job opportunity, whatever the case may be. But I think there is an inverse relationship between the outward assault and the inward fight. If the outward assault is intense, man, that inward fight is fairly easy. Never easy because you're a sinner, but hey, if somebody's threatening to kill you, you're sincere. You've got to love God and you've got to know it. If the outward assault is at a minimum, that inward fight becomes far more difficult you're struggling. I do. I don't know about you, but I struggle. It's a hard fight every single day with your own betrayer. Your heart, it's deceitful above all else. So anyway, I'd encourage him in both of those ways. It's not easy. Yeah. Hope you don't mind, Ward. It's a good question. I thought it was a great question. <clears throat> Not only must the church be furnished, but the ordinances have to be blessed. We have to understand that you can be as orthodox as you want. You can be a Pharisee, and there's no fruit. 
Only God can make the ordinances, the word sacraments, and prayer effectual as a means to convince and convert sinners. Think of the opposition. You have the world, which is trying to seduce everybody. You have the flesh, which is an adamant opposition to anything God says or requires. And you have the devil, who works hard to keep you out of it. So all of those things are stacked against us. There is no way that mere human efforts can bring somebody into the kingdom. We have to pray that the Spirit of God makes these things effectual. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit. Every time I get up there on Sunday, I feel like, afterwards, I feel like I failed the Lord. I walk down thinking, oh, that was just drivel. And I say, okay, Lord, whatever it is, drivel or not, your Spirit is the only one who can make that effectual. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you, Lord, stretch out your hand to heal, to heal the heart, to heal the mind, to heal everything about the soul. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit. There's that inward work and belief in the truth. There's that outward call. And you have to have both. Otherwise, we're just going to multiply various Pharisees. We're going to raise little Pharisees. And that's not what we want to do. Only God can make them effectual to confirm, not just convince and convert, but to confirm you as a believer, to comfort you as a believer, to build you up as a believer. We need the gospel every week, even after we're converted. And we need the Spirit to use it. We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. This is a supernatural faith. There is no place for a rationalist. I'm not talking about being rational. That's a good thing. But a rationalist who thinks that all truth comes from reason, whereas we believe all truth comes through reason. Big difference. It's a supernatural religion. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, only God can do that. That you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, and it goes on. So we're praying that God not only furnishes the ordinances, but blesses them by his spirit. And through these ordinances appointed by Christ, the church advances and destroys Satan's kingdom. Though we walk in the flesh, we're human beings. We're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy <clears throat> strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So there's this idea, the assumption, of course, there is this evil kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of grace. And we're praying in the midst of this great cosmic war that Christ's kingdom would advance. The enemy and his kingdom is implicitly described as being fortified by strongholds. Intellectual strongholds, ignorance, prejudice, moral strongholds, infidelity and perversion. We see that in our culture. Spiritual strongholds, superstition and the occult. These are strongholds that can be broken or destroyed only by the weapons that Christ has given. The word of God in prayer. John? Um, I'm just thinking about some, like a specific intersection of, of this. 
DEI? How can we respond, the question is, to um, various things in our culture which, is, which are contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture, LGBTQ and that kind of stuff? Well, the answer to that is very difficult because it's myriad. I mean, <laughs> clubbing them with a club and doing nothing at all, it's kind of a big two extremes, right? <laughs> Anywhere in between there. So we speak the truth in love. We proclaim the truth in boldness. It begins in the pulpit, and it spreads out through the congregation. And in our daily lives, when God gives us opportunity, according to our place and calling, we speak the truth in love. Now, does that mean we go as iconoclasts and break down everything that they're trying to do? Well, we're we're trying to love our neighbor, right? We're standing for the truth. We're speaking the truth. We never compromise on that. But we understand that we have to love our neighbor, which is not just our Christian neighbor. It's our unbelieving neighbor, you know. So again, I I don't know if I can answer your question in an absolute way because there's just so many different applications. But I think it requires discernment and winsomeness and boldness to speak the truth. But it's a very good question because it's so relevant to our day and age, isn't it? It's all around us. It's in our families. I think most of us probably have if not relatives or friends that are involved in that kind of thing. and It's a difficult thing. But the point is, we're trying to persuade. And this is one of the things we've lost in our culture. We don't persuade anymore. If somebody disagrees with us, and I'm talking about right and left or whoever they are, if someone disagrees, we cut them off or we hit them. (laughs) We're supposed to persuade. That's the, the art of debate. At the General Assembly this year, I thought it was a great example of some really good debate. Stood up, men disagreeing on various points of doctrine or practice, and we debated with good arguments on both sides, and you made a decision. You came to a conclusion. That's persuasion. And you use the Word of God to do so. So, I didn't really answer your question, but at least those are some thoughts. Yeah. Anybody else before we move on? Okay. We pray for the kingdom of grace to be set up in our hearts. That's where the kingdom of grace really is present now. By nature, as we said, we're in the kingdom of darkness. We need to be delivered. We ask to be translated from that kingdom of darkness to that of light. Now, of course, others are praying for us because we're never going to pray for that if we're unbelievers. So when we're praying this petition, we're asking that God's people be translated That's an amazing thing, to be translated from one kingdom to another. It's incredible. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Not hit, his beloved son. And that is the new birth, the regenerate work of the Holy Spirit. We pray for the kingdom of glory to be fully manifested. And that'll happen when the second coming of Jesus takes place. He will come. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, born again by the Spirit, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A kingdom. He made us priests and kings for his God and Father. What an amazing thing, identity. We pray that Christ's kingdom of glory may be hastened. Come quickly. And we're not trying to manipulate God when we say that into bringing the kingdom before the set time fixed from eternity. He knows when it's coming. Rather, it's an expressed and earnest desire for the arrival of this kingdom after the Apostle John. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. (sighs) Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So it's this desire for the kingdom of glory to come. And when we pray the second petition, we're asking for that glory to be manifested. We desire this so that our sinning may end. We sin every day. He forgives us. He gives us the assurance of salvation despite our daily failings. But that's a hard thing to live with, isn't it? It's difficult. And you know what I'm talking about. Your conscience plagues you as it plagues me. We ask for forgiveness. He freely gives it. It's fully uh, completed and exonerated. And yet we still struggle because it's a time of sinning. Every one of us, every day. And so we pray that our sinning would end and that Christ's glorious majesty would be fully manifested. Thy kingdom come. Any questions on this before we go to the last slide? Okay? Well, then, the church's commission, then, as you know, is to preach the gospel. How important is that? It's all important. There's so many good things that the church, that the Christians can do, but the church has to preach the gospel. Number one, preeminent. You don't do that, you're failing in your commission. You've got to preach the gospel, the whole counsel of God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, says Paul. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Vitally important. For whatever reason, God has chosen this means to save sinners. Primarily. And if the church doesn't do it, woe to the church. There are many obstacles in the way. There are many difficulties to be endured. And therefore, it calls for earnest prayer. We need to be praying. He has willed that the gospel of Jesus Christ be preached to all the nations of the earth. And the world's going to tell you how ridiculous is that. You got somebody up there preaching authoritatively, thinking that he's somebody. And you think that's going to do it? We live in an image-based culture. Come on. What are you talking about? I didn't make the rules. I think as Vaudi Bauckham says, I didn't write the mail. I just deliver it. 
That's what he said. And it takes faith to obey those things because in a culture that thinks it's weird and ridiculous, to keep on doing it, it takes courage. Some nations are closed to the gospel preaching in opposition to the planting of gospel churches, so we have to pray that the doors may be opened, that the gospel can reach the people of those countries. We support our missionaries. We pray for them. And this was the great thing about which the Apostle Paul was most concerned. Not about, I double. <sighs> he was most, more attentive to Christ's kingdom and the preached word than his own daily bread. This was all important to him. Our desire is for the gospel to have success in the ears and the hearts and the consciences of our fellow sinners. We thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, notice through the human agency, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So we're praying for this. Thy kingdom come. The kingdom of grace being set up in our hearts. The kingdom of glory being manifested at the final day. And we know it's going to happen. But isn't it wonderful how God enlists our prayers? He listens to us. He calls us to participate. And when we gather at that great banquet at the end of time, we're going to rehearse all of these wonderful things that we've been able to participate in. Final questions or comments that you have on the second petition? Matt? Yeah, the question is, how do we respond to somebody who um, really wants reconstruction? They, thy kingdom come means setting up Christendom, right? My kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. We don't war against flesh and blood. We're not setting up an Old Testament visible theocracy. That was God's administration then, and now it's spread to all nations, and it's through the preaching of the word and the administration of the, of the sacraments. So... If they can prove to me that the New Testament administration is to be Christendom, I'll listen. But I don't believe that's true. <clears throat> uh, we don't use the weapons of the world. He tells us the weapons of our warfare are different. They're spiritual. And this gets back to the whole spirituality of the church. Our weapons are spiritual. Our goals are spiritual. Our means and discipline are spiritual. It's not worldly. So that's how I would begin to respond and take them through some texts that way. Uh, Ward? Um, I'm struck by the incredible, like, the condescension of God to involve his creation in the redemptive. I was sitting as you're speaking and thinking through from the priests to, the, you know, the incarnation of Christ and Mary to even at Christ's death that he's placed in the earth and emerged from the earth. Um, just, and then the spirit in us and the works that flow out of it is just an incredible, like, gracious condescension to all of his creation in the, in the work of his family. It really is. The, the comment was how gracious and incredible it is that God would enlist us in this great endeavor. And it's true. And again, like, I, I can't imagine, I've said this more than once, you've seen those, I don't know, movies are kind of odd, but anyway... The, the battle's over, and they're all around the table. They're hilarious. They're drinking wine. They're rejoicing, you know, in the victory, and they're all rehearsing the things they've done and the great feats. That's what we're going to do. 
And it's not going to be like a worldly celebration. It's going to be a great heavenly spiritual celebration. The weapons. So the obscure 80-year-old believing woman whom nobody really gave much time to, who prayed fervently in her closet, she's going to be exalted. Oh, look, look what your prayers did. It's going to be awesome. Awesome. Anybody else? Yes, Carolyn. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, that's true. The question, the, the comment is. is the difficulty with praying hastening the kingdom because there's so many yet to be converted and we want them to be in the kingdom. So you're right. So we pray not only for thy kingdom come, but that God would bring the fullness of the Gentiles and the Jews into his church. We, we, that's included. Right. But again, we get back to the whole idea of the elect, and there's not going to be one elect soul left behind. So, you know, I was asked once, well, what happens if my loved one is in hell and I see him in heaven? Not when I'm in heaven, I see him. Am I going to, you know, be saddened? And I'll say, well, it's difficult for me to say this, but that won't be your loved one in heaven. You'll think God's thoughts after him perfectly. You'll love what he loves, you'll hate what he hates, and it'll all be good. So as difficult as that is for us to even imagine, um, he knows what he's doing. And he loves his children's children. So we take that to heart, you know, and his children's relatives, I assume. Well, it's time to close. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of glory, the mediatorial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is advancing. And we know and believe your promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we're thankful that you've given us a small part to play and ask for the Spirit's help to fulfill our responsibilities in a way that honors our King and that we would pray this second petition with understanding, faith, and reverence. Prepare us for worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.